Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. In terms of choice, I am not solely led by nice direction of a maiden's eyes. Instead, the lottery of my destiny bars me the right of voluntary choosing. But if... My father had not restrained me and hedged me by his wit to yield myself as wife to him who wins me by that means I told you. Yourself, renowned prince, then stood as fair as any comer I have looked on yet for my affection. <laughs> Even for that, I thank you. Therefore, I pray you, lead me to the caskets to try my fortune. Hello, and welcome to The Plays The Thing. I am Tim McIntosh, and I am joined by... Heidi White. Sarah Jane Bentley. And you just heard Portia replying to the Moroccan prince in Act 2 of The Merchant of Venice. Hi, you guys. Welcome back for our second act. How are you? Doing great. Thanks, Tim. Great. Thanks, Tim. Yeah. Hey, we're going to dive right into it. Portia in the caskets. This is kind of this really fun plot device that Shakespeare has introduced to us. Um, as he did with many other plays, he actually stole this. He borrowed this little plot device and it works really well. He of course changed it as is often as is always his habit. Um, but the kind of setup for this part of the play, which is either a side plot or a subplot is that Portia is um, hosting different suitors who have to choose between three different caskets, a gold casket, a silver casket, and a lead casket. And and each of these caskets have a, a different inscription, a kind of riddle that the suitor is attempting to figure out. Here's my question for you guys to start. Is there something more going on with these caskets is it just kind of a fun way to amuse the audience um because we know don't we that bassanio is going to show up and he's going to choose the right casket so what exactly is shakespeare doing here through portia and these three these three caskets gold silver and lead do you think that perhaps he's interested in um the morality of the choices that the characters make and that this could have a more universal application for the way in which people's choices affect their life and whether they gain life everlasting and whether they don't. So perhaps it stands mm. for more than just the physical reality of whether or not they will end up married to Portia. Mm -hmm. 
Right. And along with that is, you know, the test of, of worthiness to your point that uh, if, if this is a test somehow of their morality uh, and their worthiness of the lady or the prize, the wedding feast, if we're using the Christian kind of language, then, um, then there, then that, division between right and wrong must somehow be built into the test, right? You're choosing the right casket, not just the correct casket, but the good casket. Is that a fair statement? Yes, definitely. And I think that Shakespeare likes to explore the folly, the mistakes that we all make when we're we're put to the test in this way. So um, Morocco's mistake is that he he... he confuses love with external show. So he obviously mm. loves Portia's beauty and wealth and equates that to gold. But of course, the lesson he gets is that beauty and wealth will die if that's all that you love. Um, there's no kind of everlasting quality to that love. So mm. that's his mistake. And then Aragon, whose name even evokes the idea of arrogance, is sort of pride embodied and he's guilty of of self-righteousness or self-love that precludes all other love and he decides that he will esteem himself he says I will assume desert and so he rejects the gold because he thinks he's better than everyone else who will make the obvious choice which is extremely proud and he he gets the idiot because he's he's foolish not wise because he thinks that love can be bought by his own merit or self-esteem. So they're quite, as Heidi said, they're quite pointed um, moral lessons about virtue. So we're ready, in a way, we're kind of queued up for Bassanio to choose the right casket, the lead casket. But at this point in the play, Act 2, is Bassanio ready? Is he worthy of Portia at this point in the play? Sometimes he strikes me that he could be a little bit of a, um, for lack of a better word, playboy. Mm. In a sense, Shakespeare is in a little bit of a quandary here because one of the whole points of this part of the story is uh, that there's going to be a test of a person's character, in which case something has to be at stake. Um, And the structure of Merchant of Venice is, I mean, there, it has this like very fairy tale like quality to it that there's a, there's a, a woman, a princess uh, who's beautiful and rich and virtuous, and um, and that's how she's introduced in the play. There is a, a a lady, I can't remember the line completely, richly left, um, and he goes in order, in incremental order of what's desirable about her, her be- her wealth, and then her beauty, and then her virtue. Um, and much has been made of that over the centuries of whether or not Bassanio values what he leads with or whether he mm. wishes her wealth or whether he um, he values her virtue most of all right from the first. And that's why he ends with that, right? Um, but I mean, one of Shakespeare's, one of the curious things about Shakespeare's men and women is that in a very patriarchal society, he writes these amazing female characters, uh, these leading ladies who far outstrip the men who are pursuing them in the comedies. Um, that's true for Rosalind. It's true for, uh, Viola, for Viola. It's true here for Portia. That right from the beginning, Portia's... Uh, beauty, wealth, and virtue, all the things that are desirable and good about her remain static throughout the play. We get to see them unfolding, right? By the end of the play, we see her as with just this incredible depth of character, but it seems pretty clear that she was always like that. We're just, it's just being gradually revealed throughout the play. Mm. She isn't becoming better, but Bassanio is. Uh, he's being tested and found worthy. And as he is found worthy, he discovers himself and rises up to being the man that is worthy of Portia. Uh, And this test of the caskets is part of that. Um, But he's, he's a curious character because at the beginning he's, he's in debt. Um, Mm -hmm. He's almost like, you know, he's almost like the Wickham of Shakespeare at this point. He's like, um, he's, he's taken money and pledged for, from his friend's life 
Antonio has to get money from Shylock and he pledges his very life's his very life for it. And Bassanio mm-hmm. takes it so that he can go wager it all on a woman that he might not win. And there's there's something a little bit ugh, I don't know, not frivolous, that, maybe? Is he frivolous? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, what do you two? I mean, you're Sarah Jane shaking her head at that. She doesn't think he's frivolous. Do you find him worthy of Portia here at the beginning of the play, or do you think he becomes more worthy? Yeah, I agree with you that he becomes more worthy. And where I would differ with you is I think that the the quest that he chooses, the quest that brings about that um, augmentation of virtue in his character is a worthy quest. I don't think it's um, frivolous. So I think it's it's right and good and virtuous that, mm-hmm. that the merchant should hazard all he has to go and buy that precious pearl. So that's that's the only place where I would... Yes, I think price. it's I think it's right and honourable that he should desire Portia and that Antonio, with his great friendship, is willing to venture everything for him, even his life. Mm-hmm. So you guys, um, we meet. Um, oh, sorry, Sarah Jane, keep going. Well, I think that the quest that Bassanio's on is is sort of an everyman quest, and that. Um, the, if, you, if you look at the conversations surrounding the casket choices, Portia and her suitors speak in terms of life and death. And so that the choice that they're making mm. represents spiritual life or spiritual death. If you choose mammon or you choose self-righteousness over love, then what you get is nothing. Aragon goes away with a fool's head. Morocco goes away with a skull. And the um, the uh, the other thing they have to forfeit, of course, is that they can never marry. They take that oath before they choose. So yeah, the stakes are high. The stakes are really high. Yeah, this isn't just um, a game. This affects their whole life, and they lose everything um, if you consider marriage to mean that they get to generate the line of their blood. And um, Portia's quite playful about this. Her first line, the one we listened to at the beginning of the show, she says, in terms of choice, I am not solely led. So even trying to um, drop hints (laughs) and Uh play games uh with the suitors, um, which makes me think she, she obviously, well, we know by the end, she does know which casket is the right one for her. And um, she's had all the princes of, of the nations coming across the sea to hazard these guesses. She must get pretty bored <laughs> of seeing these hundreds of shooters. <laughs> she plays games with them. Um, do, you, do you know the Gesta Romanorum um, parallel to this? Shall I just go through it quickly? How she? No, yeah, go through it. Yeah, Please so do. in the Gesta Romanorum, a maiden is shipwrecked and she is betrothed to marry the son of an emperor. And allegorically, she represents the soul. So she shipwrecks and she's then given a test of the caskets. And when she passes the test, she gets to marry the son of the emperor. And there's actually a moral to the story, which comes from Deuteronomy 15 to 20. So so Shakespeare is actually using... um, the moral from his source, which is based on a biblical passage about how God makes us choose between life and death. Um, and it refers specifically as Moses talking about the golden calf. So yeah. in a way you can see Aragon chooses the golden calf over what, what is right to love. And um, yeah. it's interesting, isn't it, that Shakespeare puts the man to the test, not the woman. Yeah. Yeah. What do you make of that, Sarah Jane? What's going on there? Why is, why is the man being tested? Is it just kind of like a fun inversion of what is the, the, the typical um, engagement quest? I think it might be to do with Shakespeare's, I think possibly imagery of the Trinity in the play that you've got Antonio as Christ Portia as the Holy Spirit and Bassanio as every man 
choosing the choices we all have to make in life. That's, does that's it, does it, that, I mean, I'm using the choice, the word choice there very kind of loosely and freely. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose the challenges that we face. Well, I mean, a bossonos is a, a literary term meaning a, a, a test of worthiness and that protagonist, I mean, what we have, he's not really the protagonist, Porsche is more of the protagonist, but right here we have Bassanio, mm -hmm. his name mirrors mm. that concept. He is Bassanio and he has to pass, you know, Bassanos, he has to conquer and, and be victorious. Uh, and, and so in that sense, I think he has to have something to overcome uh, in order for that I mean, what we we do have something at stake, right? His future. Uh, the his, you mentioned his lineage. He can't have children, uh, and um, and carry on. Which, interestingly enough, we are reading "The Sun Also Rises" on the flagship show right now, in which that's a mm. major theme. And I remember reading that book for the first time um, and realizing what a big deal it is. Uh, you know, as a teenage girl, realizing what a very big deal it is to be able to pass on a line and what an impact that would make upon a man. It's different for a woman, right? Because we have the physical ability to bear children. So there's a cost physically to us one way or the other, uh, whether we become mothers or not. And there's also a cost to a man. So to ask a man to wager um, his, the, his, future, to wager his fertility, uh, to make himself impotent uh, in such a choice, uh, you're right, that, that makes the stakes nonsensically high unless there's some kind of allegory to the story. It's ridiculous that a man would do such a thing for a woman uh, that he doesn't know, right, um, uh, in which there's not yet a real and abiding love right. for her. Um, unless there's some kind, there's something else going on to go back to Tim's question at the top of the show. So what is that thing that is going on? And is it, as, as you're, as you're, you're saying potentially I think, salvation? I think that's right. Um, because if Aragon or Morocco were willing to take that risk just on the basis of gaining Portia's wealth, then that is a very superficial choice, isn't it? And that, that they're not approaching the challenge with the, the right sort of humility that it requires of them. And in fact, it's interesting because Aragon's told, isn't he, in the little note he gets inside the casket, that the casket is sort of silvered over. And it's reminiscent mm -hmm. of that moment in the scripture where the Pharisees in their self-righteousness are called whitewashed sepulchres. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of what Aragon is supposed to be like, I think, that he's he's wedded to false values. And so he's then denied any other marriage. And, and actually, Psalm 12 is also evoked in that little passage, which is um, oh, so. about the silver being seven times tested. Um, how the proud speech and vanity is... Um, is called out in Psalm 12. I haven't got a copy of Psalm 12 in front of me. Yes, I have. Yes, I have. The Lord shall root out all deceitful lips and the tongue that speaketh proud things. The words of the Lord are pure wonders, even as the silver which from the earth is tried and purified seven times in the fire. Mm. Oh, that's great. That's really good. We've made so, Tim, do you mind if I insert one more comment Please, on the, yeah. the casket test? Because I, um, I mean, you know this. I don't know if Sarah Jane knows this, but I, I have this, this big theory of uh, Western literature, maybe all literature, that it has uh, a that explores the conflict between duty and mm -hmm. desire in the human soul, uh, and that, uh, and and I think in Shakespeare, that's very well <laughs> highlighted in all, in all of his plays. You find characters pursuing their duty, characters uh, idolizing their duty, characters pursuing their desire at the expense of their duty. And he looks at the the, um, the cost of that Romeo and Juliet uh, is um, 
an obvious example of that. Their duty is to their family, but their desire is for each other and it destroys them. And what does that mean? But here we have, I think, in the casket test, a really interesting kind of exploration of this. And that if if the gold casket is going to draw men of desire, right? The, it's even in the, the test. Uh, whoever opens this casket will get what he desires. And, um, and Morocco is drawn to that, right? He wants to have, uh, it, it almost feels like the echoes of um, Paris, Prince of Troyan choosing Helen and his bossinos, which he fails miserably, uh, that he, he wants the woman that all the other men desire the most desirable woman he wants um and his his desire for for portia is based entirely on the fact that other men want her um and that he would be getting the best one right the the lust of the flesh the um the desire of the eyes and the boastful pride of life um all kind of meet here but then Obviously, with Aragon, I think there's a distorted kind of sense of duty in him that he is living up to. He's better than everybody else, and he should get what he mm. deserves. Mm. Isn't that mm. the cry of the older brother in the mm. parable? Right? Like, I have stayed here with you, Father, and you've never given me so much as a young goat to celebrate with my friends. I deserve more. Give me a symbol of my desserts. Don't give grace to the younger brother. And there's... Uh, so I think that there's this distortion of desire and this distortion of duty. And Shakespeare is, is indicting that and saying to follow one or the other is not true love. Um, and so I noticed that particularly this time. And then obviously one thing we haven't said, which is really obvious and worth saying at least once on the podcast, is that, uh, that the notion of death that's connected with the, the name casket Um and uh, and lead being then connected with with that's what you make a casket out of like and there's this connection with lead of lead and death and it is connected with um with the biblical phrase that love is as strong as death and that there's a finality to it that in choosing a woman to pledge your life to you are dying to yourself. You are not getting what you deserve and you're not fulfilling your desires. You're committing to laying your life down. And there's something about Bassanio that's ready for that, that's worthy of that. And that's be, and he's being drawn up to that. Yeah, that's so, so clearly put. Absolutely. I think it would be good also just to look a little bit at um, the word complexion hmm. referring to Morocco. So going back to what Heidi was saying about his lust and his passion there, there probably is a bit of um stereotyping going on here and morocco is throughout all the imagery of the speeches um pertaining to him associated with heat he wants to prove whose blood is reddest and as you say he wants the woman that everybody else wants and he's going to prove that he's a bigger man than they are and um we find at the end that his heat is blown cold mm. And um, what does the casket say? I'm trying to remember. Where's the page? Um, the first of gold who this inscription bears, who, choose, who chooseth me shall gain what many men desire. Yes. And when he chooses the skull with the scroll in it, he's told... Mm. Fare you well, your suit is cold. Mm. And he says, cold indeed and labor lost, then farewell heat and welcome frost. So what's really interesting about the word complexion is that it doesn't just refer to skin tone. We would think of complexion as, as meaning how somebody's skin looks on their face specifically. But actually, the medieval meaning of the word is to do with um, temperament and the balance of the humors and heat and cold. So we shouldn't read Portia's statement, let all of his complexion choose me so, as simply referring to the color of his skin. She's actually talking about his character, that he was too mm -hmm. hot-blooded, he was too mm -hmm. passionate, and therefore that not virtuous, essentially, mm. um, because it meant um, that his, his humors were out of proportion, his complexion isn't right, he's got too much red-hot blood. Mm. So... I just sort of want to make that defense of Portia because we, we could have too shallow an understanding of that word, mm. complexion. 
Yeah. It's a good reason to read your Shakespeare with a good annotated, a good annotated version of your Shakespeare, because yeah, that kind of double meaning of what we consider complexion, which is kind of like the outward appearance and then temperament also. It's a, it's a little wordplay that Shakespeare through Portia is having fun with. Okay, we've made two Old Testament allusions, and I, as a segue, am going to introduce a third. Sarah Jane mentioned the Psalms and Deuteronomy. Uh, in Act 2, Scene 2, there's this curious little exchange between the servant of Shylock, Lancelot, and his father, Gobo, and it's a, it's a strange scene. And we talked off the air about how it's a little bit hard to know what to do with it. Are we supposed to laugh at this? Because, and the, the Old Testament illusion is, it's almost an exact mimicking of the Esau and uh, when Esau tricks his father out of the birthright. They mimic the scene almost exactly. But it's, it's what's kind of confusing to me, maybe you guys can clarify it, for me is that um lancelot is oh i'm sorry i said esau esau is the one who's tricked out of it jacob is the one who achieves the birthright um what are we supposed to make of lancelot he he seems kind of cruel to his father in this opening scene his blind father he kind of plays a joke on him and says that his he his the son of gobo lancelot is dead. Gobo can't see him. And he later kind of, you know, like plays it off. But what are we supposed to do with this scene? Lancelot and Gobo. I take your silence to be expressed in the same amount of confusion as I've experienced. (laughs) There's a parallel with Antonio and Bassanio, isn't there? That in a way, Antonio has to blindly in a way or trustingly venture his bond to back Bassanio's suit. And Lancelot is asking his father to do the same thing here. He needs his father's, he needs something, doesn't he, from his father, a gift in order for him to be um, accepted into Bassanio's household. So he's asking for his father to be bound in order that he can be released from his servitude to Shylock and that he can go and work for Bassanio instead. And he's given that in the scene. And I wonder if that, um, it's it's all building towards the conversion of Shylock and that it's not only Shylock who's converted, but it's all his household. First of all, his servant, then his daughter, and then Shylock. And so there's this kind of redemption or salvation, not only for Shylock, but for all his household in, mm. in the Christian allegory. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I think there's that's... also something going on about conscience that is probably very funny when you see it acted out with the two devils on his shoulders. Yes. Oh, yes. right. Right. Yes. Um, yeah. I, I really like that idea of the salvation of the entire household. I think that that is helpful for me to tie this particular scene in. Cause this is a scene that's always kind of stumped me. Um, and I think, Looking at it from that perspective, it does become more important in the entire context of the play because we are confronted in this act with two members of Shylock's household who'd want to be free and want to be integrated into the larger culture. They want to become Christians uh, and they want to escape. Um, One of them, of course, is is Lancelot and the other is his daughter, Jessica. Um, And... I I think there's so I mean that what happens to Shylock at the end of this play has had many many has a very it provokes a very strong response from the audience very strong one way or the other either of an empathy with him or uh, well he got what he deserved kind of um, and but being able to to see as human these other members of his household um, 
is helpful for understanding why an Elizabethan audience would have seen Shylock's forced conversion as redemptive at the end of the play. And so that's helpful in looking at some of these scenes along the way for his household. Yeah. And then there's also a lot of comedy set up here where we have Mm -hmm. the dramatic irony later. First of all, we hear Lancelot complaining about how terrible it is to serve in Shylock's household, how he's, you know, starving and you can see his ribs and things like this. And then a couple of scenes later, we have Shylock talking about how lazy he is, how he never does anything, (laughs) how he's eating all the time. And um, I'm sure that would have been very funny to the audience where people would routinely have probably big household staff, or you might be a member of the audience who was a, you know, a member of staff in that household. So there's a lot of upstairs, downstairs comedy here. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Yeah. The relationship between Lancelot and Gobo ties into this pattern that we're seeing in the play between um, parents and children. So Lancelot and Gobo is, it's a little bit of a curious relationship at the beginning. That's going to make more sense later. But Portia's relationship to her father in the very beginning of the play seems a little bit strained. And of course, we are introduced to Jessica in this act, daughter of Shylock. And it occurred to me that in a lot of Shakespeare's plays, the father is often, or there is a father in the play who is very powerful. I'm thinking especially of Romeo and Juliet. Both the fathers of the households are very powerful and they're kind of obstacles to the romance that could potentially happen. And by the end of the play, the fathers are reconciled usually with the children. Um, Hmm. But Fathers are oftentimes kind of represented as sort of uh, as a stock obstacle to romance. But it seems like there's something different happening here in this play. Something unique is kind of happening. Um, Jessica and Shylock are about to be estranged. Jessica, daughter of Shylock. Portia is not estranged from her father, but is kind of given this task that he has designed. And there's this question of whether or not she's going to comply with it. And then the kind of developing relationship between Lancelot and Gobo. Is Shakespeare saying something different about the relationship between fathers and children in this play than he said in, in other plays? Well, the fathers aren't very comic here. Um, he plays with the the father as a block to love um, motif in a lot of his plays. You know, it's a little different in Much Ado. The father is actually helping the couple get together in Much Ado About Nothing. There's, you know, there's, uh, and in some of his other plays, there the father is more traditionally forbidding the young man to the house, or is there some kind of law of the land? So it may not be a physical father, but a, a, a assertion of paternity. I'm thinking of Love's Labor's Lost in particular on that one. Um, But in this play, you're right. Portia is not estranged from her father in the sense that they have a broken relationship, but she's profoundly estranged from her father in the sense that he's dead. He's no longer alive. um, They can't, she can't plead with him. He can't relent here. Right? Yeah. He can't say, I let you off the hook. Never mind. I see that you and Bassanio truly love each other. Feel free to get married and, and bypass the, the, the Bassanos. Um, they, he can't do that. Um, and, but what's cool about Portia, is she, she's, she could just flout her father's command, but she doesn't. She abides by it. Um, so in that sense, they're not estranged. They're still connected mm-hmm. uh, beyond the grave in the sense that she obeys his commands in the will. Um, and, and then the, it's different with Shylock and Jessica because Shylock is not comic. Uh, even in Shakespeare's day, I, I'm i not sure that he could. He may have been played overly stereotypically, but he's not ever a comic figure. Mm. He's, he's, you can argue whether he's a villainous figure or a tragic figure, but I'm not sure you can make a case that he's truly comic. Yeah. Um, and so I think that is a difference in this play as well. Yeah. I probably see Shylock as, as comic potentially. I think he does have some of the 
um, features of a clown, but I think <laughs> it's probably, you know, the clown character, but I think it's probably very difficult to present him in that way on the stage these days. I know that when I saw it at the Almeida, he was very funny. He, he took the most laughs from the audience. Huh. Really? Yeah, he was the he was a moneylender in Vegas, and I think he owned a lot of casinos. And he he was this sort of very shrewd older generation, um, just having a ball with all these foolish young gamblers. Interesting. And um, he was really really funny. And I think that there is potential for him to be the clown character in in its day, but now obviously much more difficult to play it that way. But even in, even in one three, which we heard last week, the kind of closing speech the closing lines of his speech fair sir you spit on me on wednesday last you spurned me such a day another time you called me dog and for these courtesies i'll lend you thus much monies it's a funny line if performed by a better actor than me it's it's like it's comically potentially right and in this act he says about going for dinner with Bassanio. He says, I'll go in hate to feed upon the prodigal Christian. And, and you know, mm-hmm. he's kind of, that's hyperbole. He's joking. Um, yeah. But, and there's a huge irony in the scene because he, this is, the play is always about gain and loss, isn't it? And he's going to gourmandize mm-hmm. to eat at Bassanio's table to dine with the Christians. And while that happens, he loses his ducats and his daughter. And in terms of the father as an obstacle parallel, I thought that, I think that, I don't know, perhaps Shakespeare's being quite consistent here in some ways. I mean, if we look at Brabantio and his pursuit of Desdemona and Othello, it's so similar here to Shylock um, trying to find his daughter in the nighttime who's gone off in a gondola in Venice. Um, and it's it's quite sad how uh, he's, he's really pining for her and for his money. And... Um, I think, you know, the example as well of Romeo and Juliet, as you've said, Heidi, duty comes into conflict with desire. And I always wonder in that play, what if Juliet had just married Paris? You know, isn't maybe her father's just right and he knows what's best. (laughs) And the same as Brabantio, he didn't think it would be good for Desdemona to go and marry Othello, who's always fighting these conquests. And fair play, you know, why would Shylock want his daughter to run off with um, Lorenzo, who's, as we've said, one of the lads of Venice. On this particular night, he's dressed up, ready to go to a mask. He's had a few beers with the boys. It's, he's not eligible as a husband in a father's eyes. So mm. it's, a source, it's a source of conflict and a source of comedy, I think, in the play. Mm-hmm. The, um, in these scenes in Act Two, there's kind of a background street festival party happening. And there's a moment that Shylock takes exception to uh, what's going on outside. And he speaks to Jessica, who we find out is about to run away from him, basically telling her to secure the house. Um, I want to play a clip from the Al Pacino version, the Al Pacino movie production of Merchant of Venice, in which he is speaking to Jessica and uh, subtly mocking or denigrating the kind of frivolity of the Christians outside his window. Let's take a listen. Hear you me, Jessica. Clamber not you up to the casements then, nor thrust your head into the public street to gaze on Christian fools with varnished faces. Let not the sound of shallow foppery enter my sober house. Shylock says, let not the sound of shallow foppery enter my sober house. Does, does he have a complaint about the Christians that are having a good time in the street? Or is this just a street festival? And this is more about Shylock's refu- refusal to kind of, I don't know, enjoy himself. And maybe like he's too obsessed with like, you know, abiding by the, the law or something like that. Is his complaint legit? That's my question. I, I mean, that's a really good question. I, I mean, I wouldn't want my daughter dating that guy. Right. Like, so that's, I think one thing that Sarah Jane said a few minutes ago, that's helpful for uh, 
understanding Shakespeare's humanism <laughs> is that hardly ever is anybody completely wrong in any play. Like most of the time there's some kind of point counterpoint. It's um, the fathers generally do have a point, a legitimate concern, a true and abiding love for their daughters. uh, That is an attempt to truly protect them from the dangers uh, of the world and from the risks that it takes to say, join yourself to someone of a different faith or a different race or whatever it is. Like there's a cost to that. And the fathers, more than they are just controlling jerks in Shakespeare, are truly humanized characters. And that's one of the great things about Shakespeare is there's always some something to have empathy with in a character's position, even if they end up creating disharmony uh, with it. But in this in this play, yeah, I think Shylock does have a point. And part of it then, so that's the human level. This is just some drunk reveler on the street who's a completely different kind of person than they are as a family. Uh, and then on the societal level, these are people who have mocked and been cruel to Shylock because he's a Jew. And they are they're representative of a of a culture that has persecuted them because they, you know, the Jews are persecuted people have always been um, and was in this particular time period, just as they are now. And so there's, there's a humanity to that, even though at this point, Shylock is, um, you know, we see Shylock's flaws, but we can also, as you said, get behind his eyes and see what his concerns are. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And I think that um, the, the carnival in Venice was wild. You would lock up yep. your daughter, I think, if you were a discerning father. Um, but there's, again, this allegory going on where we have the contrast between Belmont mm-hmm. and Venice. That Portia's house, if you like, is this kind of heavenly place of music and feasting. Um, and in Venice, the, the epicenter of... of um, deprivation and darkness, if you like, is Shylock's house. Jessica says, our house is hell. And Shylock's compared to a devil many times in this scene, sometimes jokingly, sometimes not so jokingly. And so if Shylock's house is like hell, well, there's no music and there's no feasting. And and Shylock, I suppose, in the Old Covenant is not willing to enter into the feasting um, of the Eucharist, which the Christians celebrate. So on the symbolic level, there's something going on there that he's invited to the feast, um, but that he he kind of doesn't want to partake, or he says, "I'll go in hate," mm-hmm. um, and he he doesn't want his daughter to take part in the festival either. So that I think there's maybe something about the religious significance of it, and I think there was. Oh, I wish I knew more about the carnival in Venice. I think there was it was to do with a religious festival, a feast, probably in the church calendar. So we conclude act two, all of our characters have been introduced and the main plot points are really beginning to rise here. And of course, the central plot point is this question of the bond that Antonio owes to Shylock. Where are we, Sarah Jane, at the conclusion of two with regards to this bond? Well, we have a little interlude in Act 2, Scene 8 of the two minor characters, Solerio and Solanio, discussing the fortunes um, of some ships at sea. And Solanio says, let good Antonio look, he keep his day or he shall pay for this. Mm -hmm. Because they are very aware that Shylock's rage will have been um, pricked by the fact that the Christians have stolen his daughter and his ducats and he's running through the streets crying out for them. So for Antonio to also um, let him down would be an added injury to that insult. Um, And there are rumours abroad that there miscarried a vessel of our country richly fraught um, on the narrow seas, the channel basically between France and England. So we're having these rumours already that possibly Antonio's ships are not going to come back with the treasure that he was expecting. And there's... um, there's a tension now because Solerio and Solano have told the audience, but they, they don't want to tell Antonio because they're worried about how he will respond and, and how that will affect his relationship with Bassanio. Adding to that. So the stakes are high. Stakes are really high. And I think adding to the stakes is Shylock 
having lost his daughter, Jessica, is now kind of blaming Antonio for Jessica's loss. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Blaming Antonio for Jessica's loss. He's kind of unfairly, I think, Jessica uh, Antonio doesn't have anything to do with her loss, but he's kind of, his anger is building. Um, and the loss of Jessica is sort of compounding his, his rage. My and, daughter and my ducats. Yeah, my daughter and my ducats. And it's going to explode in the famous opening um, scenes of Act 3, uh, which we were going to hear next week. We're going to hold it back from our audience. This is one of the more famous uh, Shakespeare monologues. Sarah Jane, you, you've got something you want to say. Well, I think still to your question about, uh, you know, what, what are the stakes like in the background? Yeah. There's a feast in this scene, but there's a sense in the play that the appetite for this quest is still building. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of um, imagery here from Gratiano specifically about um, hunger and desire. And he says, who riseth from a feast with that keen appetite that he did, he sits down. Where is the horse that doth untread again his tedious measures with the unbated fire that he did pace them at first? All things that are are with more spirit chased than enjoyed. So first of all here, he's talking about disappointment, that um, the anticipation or the, the chase is, is the fun part of the quest. And when you actually finally fulfill it, it's not as good as you thought yeah. it was going to yeah. be or... So, so that's an interesting um, little shift in the mood and the atmosphere, I think. And then he gives us this image of the yonker or the prodigal that goes forth um, full of sail and comes back ragged. So Gratiano is not a hopeful character. Mm -hmm. he, he seems here to be predicting that things are going to go wrong. Mm -hmm. And that image of the prodigal that returns with over-weathered ribs and ragged sails, lean, rent, and beggared by the strumpet wind, could in a way be referring to what will happen yeah. to Antonio's ships. Although, of course, that only happens in the short term because there's this kind of miraculous turnaround of his fortune. And Gratiano's proved wrong. An excellent bit of foreshadowing by uh, Shakespeare and also you. I might add Sarah Jane. Well done. You guys, any closing thoughts for act two? Uh, anything that we should be looking for in act three? I, I, I think, yes. I mean, we're looking for Bassanio's, uh, you know, revelation is the worthy suitor. We're looking for what's going to happen with, um, with Antonio and Shylock. I was really struck this time in reading the play and thinking about discussing the play with the two of you, uh, how um, we have an antagonist in the play that isn't against our protagonist. And I think that that's an interesting kind of dissonance within the play that you've, that Portia is the protagonist potentially i mean maybe we can debate that i don't know that's who i see as the the main character the the most heroic character um even if it's bassanio that's still this it still stands that shylock is this villainous antagonist but he is pitted himself against antonio not either of our lovers he has yeah. no stake in their marriage or uh, at all um, and I've, I just, I found that just an interesting kind of dissonance as we were in preparing to talk mm -hmm. about this. I've noticed that before, but it's, um, but this particular time reading it, I just kind of can't get it out of my head. I keep noticing mm -hmm. it over and over again and wondering about that. And, you know, is that a flaw in the play or is it some kind of like intentional device that keeps us on our toes? Like I, I'm, I'm really curious about that. Um, and so I'm curious what the two of you make of that. Maybe we don't have to talk about it now, but I, I'd really love to hear your thoughts on that. So that's the thing yeah. that's been kind of ringing in my head. We can definitely talk about that more. I, I think about that too. And I think what's so brilliant about it is that Shakespeare has locked into the dramatic structure of the play, the idea of substitutionary atonement hmm. so that the villain is not going for the hero. There's someone standing there um, in his in place. Between the two of them. 
yeah, like Christ. If you, yep, to go to the yeah. to the allegory of that. That's interesting. Mm. Huh. And that Shakespeare is willing to bend the conventions of drama to to look at that theological structure. I think mm. that's really interesting. Yeah. Mm. It it also it it feels to me because Shylock is separated from Portia and Bassanio, he feels a lot more like a a singular character who's kind of um, at war with himself, if that makes sense, rather than at war with whatever political or economic enemies he might have. Sure. He hates Antonio, but he does it. it, His psychology is brought to the forefront because Antonio's presence is kind of diminished is as, as an antagonist to the antagonist. If that makes any sense. <laughs> right. No, that's interesting. That's yeah, that's interesting. Mm. Sarah Jane, what should we look for in act act three? Oh, very well, it's very dramatic. The completion of the casket plot. Yeah. Um, and yet not the end of the play. That's mm-hmm. very interesting. Right. No on stage marriage at that point. There could be, but it's we have something else instead. We have um First of all, we have a day of judgment. Very interesting. And um, I like the way how at the end of Act Two, we're in the world of Belmont and we have news of this suitor coming who um, is going to be like the summer, a breath of summer wind coming mm-hmm. onto the island. And then Act Three, Scene One, we're back into the hate plot of Venice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Shylock wants to feed his revenge. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's an exciting journey for the audience oscillating between these two worlds. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Okay. You guys, next week, act three, we will continue the rising action of Merchant of Venice. I want to invite listeners to find us on Facebook at the close reads podcast, Facebook page. Um, you can weigh in there, ask your questions before we even host the Q and a session, which would be the sixth podcast in this series. And it's a great way to make new friends. Uh, People even exchange recipes. And people are always exchanging book ideas. Read this next. Read this next. So please join us there. It's a great way to continue the conversation. Thank you again for being uh, a faithful listener. And join us next week for Act 3 of The Merchant of Venice. On behalf of Heidi White and Sarah Jane Bentley, I am Tim McIntosh. Happy reading. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.